This is Board Game Squad. The show exclusively dedicated to the world of board gaming. For those who care about the meeple and who understand the sheer pleasure of sitting at a table and enjoying human interaction. Dude, it's your turn. Are you ready to meet our hosts? Here are Adam and Paul. Welcome to the Board Game Squad podcast. I'm your host, Paul. Adam's not with us today, but lucky enough, I'm joined by designer extraordinaire David Percy. Let's stick to David. Hi. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I was talking to, to David beforehand and I was I was doing my very best to pronounce his name correctly because everyone butchers it. I'm unfortunately American and I have propensities to, to butcher things myself. So <laughs> apologies, David. That's that's fine. That's why that's why I try to keep at least some of my games harder to pronounce than my own name to make sure to, you know, even out the challenge. Oh, I see. That's the reason. I'm not quite where my friend and colleague Daniel is with his unpronounceable games, but, you know, I'm I'm working on it to join his league. Again, thanks for joining us, David. I'm a big fan of your games. Anachrony is a top 10 game for me easily, but for the audience that may be a little unfamiliar with some of the games you've put out there, could you tell them a little bit about some games you've designed and, and, and worked on, the ones that you're... And uh, why don't you give us one game that you're especially proud of, your favorite title? Oh, no, no. I, no. I I am still not picking my favorite kid. Uh, okay. All well. the others would be whining. It's always the last one. <laughs> That's quite okay. The the, ones, the one that most recently went off to college, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, my first one was a game called Redacted, which uh, came from a friend of mine, Mihai Vinca, uh, while I was still living in Hungary, and it was his core idea that we developed its uh, hidden team tactical fighting game where you don't know who your teammate and who your enemy is, and you're trying to find some random items and then get through the secret embassy. And it's hilarious if it goes well and horrible if it doesn't. But hey, we were young and we were excitable. So, <laughs> uh, you know. I still think it's a very cool, unique thing. If you have four or six people, try it out. Uh, after that, obviously, Anachrony landed and, and, and changed the world. So that's uh, worker placement, time travel, post-apocalyptic, tableau building game, if you haven't heard about it. And then, you know, please go and play it. I worked on David Kirchhoff's Petricor, which is a game where you're making it rain. And then your rain is area controlling the different crops as you're trying to make it grow. Uh, then what I consider my biggest innovation in quotes is Kitchen Rush, which is a real-time cooperative worker placement game that spawned the sequel uh, Rush MD, where it's the same thing but with doctors instead of cooks. And uh, and then I had Dice Settlers, which is a deck build bag building dice manipulation area control game that's the easiest way to explain it uh or a abstract 3x as would some would say and uh, and then my lesser known but very close to my heart uh, days of ire and nights of fire which is a duology based on real life historical events of the 1956 hungarian revolution against the soviets uh because it was four years ago, it was the 60th anniversary, and a friend of mine asked, hey, why you guys don't design anything about Hungarian history? And I was like, we can do one. And then it accidentally turned into two. Uh, so those are the games. Oh, and, and welcome to Dino World, which is a heavy roll and write game, uh, plus an expansion for Tashkalar, an expansion for Tricarian, because you know those are my favorite games. 
and then a million solo modes for a million other people's games. These are the ones I had until now. <laughs> and about two years ago, I went full-time, which meant that I suddenly had a lot more time and a lot more way to focus. So my productivity has more than doubled or went exponential or something. Uh, so Venice was on Kickstarter last year, which is a pick-up-and-deliver Euro engine builder, which, like Lords of Waterdeep meets something that's pick-up-and-deliver. And that's a bit of a sequel, right? It's a sequel to Fabio Lopiano's uh, Ragusa. Well, more like a thematic continuation. Thematic sequel. Yeah. Yes. like the, 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 the two games were like... I, I, I knew Fabio while he was developing uh, Ragusa, and he playtested some of my games, probably even Venice. And then while, when I was trying to pitch it to publishers, they were all complaining that who wants a three to five player heavy interactive game where you can nastily undercut the other person and it's very dense and there are very few actions and it's difficult and I was like, how did you get your game signed? I was like, well, I took it to this British guy called Brainhead Graves and then we developed it together and now it's not 3 to 5 but 1 to 5 and it's not as nasty and it's well, it's still a bit dense but it's now fun. So I was like, I went to the same guy and hey, do you want to do that again? And he was like, why would I sign another a game that has the same problems as the previous one? I was like, A, because you solved it once. B, because then you can call it a thematic sequel. Gotcha. And he was like, huh, it's a, it's another Mediterranean trading city. We can just make a series out of it. So, so that's, a, that, that's a tip for getting published. If, uh, if you're having a trouble uh, signing with a publisher... Maybe piggyback off of a, a friend's game design and call it a call it a yes, sequel. Yes, yes, that's 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 how I got you know repeatedly all the opportunities in this life. But I have it in good authority that uh, uh, the third guy from the same London playtest group, where both uh, Fabio and myself used to go before we both moved away, uh, had signed a third a third game about a third Mediterranean trading city <laughs> to finish off the trilogy. So <laughs> magic happens there. Uh, and then I had another game on Kickstarter last year that's going to deliver in a month or two called Rome and Roll, which we advertised as the world's heaviest roll and ride game. But that's just marketing because it's a dice drafting, engine building, city building game, which happens to have rolling and writing in it. Like it has nothing to do with, you know, the Galshans Clever and, and Welcome to Your Dream Home and all the roll and rides you know. So, you know, it's a medium-heavy Euro that happens to have pen, pens in it. I'm very excited for that one, personally. I've been trying to recapture that magic. I've now tossed out two designs that started as a potential sequel to Roman Roll. I'm, I'm, I'm now on attempt number three, and I still don't know if I'm succeeding or not. So, And then this year, I have a whole sloth of new games. The first one is, I think, which is what we're going to talk the most about today, is coming on Kickstarter April the 6th. When is this podcast going to air? Hopefully within the week. Basically, it's on Kickstarter right now when you're listening to this. It's called Excavation Earth. It's a market manipulation, uh, dual car use card uh, drafting game where you're playing as alien archaeologists trying to make a big buck by digging up artifacts of the long extinct humanity and selling it to the galactic market so i'm i'm on your your board game geek profile and you're calling it brass light could you uh oh yeah talk about I, that a i'm on bit? my board game geek profile as well because i routinely forget about games i've designed so i need the list <laughs> yes so the, the 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 thing that makes it feel like because Brass is one of my favorite games. And and the thing that I did to try and remind myself of Brass is that uh, at the beginning of every round, you get six cards, and plus a few cards that are only good for movement in Excursion Earth. And on your turn, you take two actions, and every action requires you to discard a card. And a card can be used either for movement or for excavating artifacts that match the color of the card or manipulating markets that match the icon of the card. Or any card can be discarded to do a sell action, which is where you cash your collection in. And obviously, a good move is digging up three artifacts, which is one or two actions, 
manipulating three markets and then selling at all three, which is uh, a total of six actions plus however many you need to move. So somewhere between six and eight actions. And of course, you're taking actions two at a time and your hand is diminishing of cards. So it's the whole, I can do this or that, but if I go too far down this road, I can't go to the other road. And meanwhile, the other player takes turns. So if he sells on that market, then those buyers will go away. And so the tension structure is similar to brass because of the play two cards and every card is an action and every action is a card kind of structure to it. But mechanically, it's nothing like brass because it's not, not, there's no network building. There is no uh, uh, money income, etc. So, you know. Uh, that sounds cool, and I mean thematically, um, you know, very interesting theme. W- was that initially your idea, or is that no? That was that was Gordon, Gordon at Mattybots. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, uh, the the game's original idea belongs to Yi, who is my ex-wife. And three, four years ago, she had an idea that she wanted to make a game about. Originally, it was about racing unicorns and other magical horses and then it became into being a bookmaker for a unicorn race and your kind of stock trading or futures trading bets for the upcoming race as the race gets closer and closer and we figure out who is the most likely horse to win Uh, but like it was very intangible and and even though the mechanisms were smart people didn't understand what we are trying to do, like everybody was like, so which horse do I want to win? And I was like, no, 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 you're trying to sell off the tickets at the moment when the horse it is for is the in, in the lead for potential valuation. And like people couldn't grasp that. So so my biggest addition to the game, but this game already had the multi-use cards, the drafting, so the core system was all there. And what I added was that... Uh, uh, because the, the horse racing version had a racetrack where the horses moved forward based on their current valuation. But as like that's not a good visualization. Nobody's understanding it. So let's make uh, let's pick a new theme. Let, instead of buy, buying these, these tickets that nobody understands, let's dig up artifacts. And instead of selling it to the townsfolk, let's sell the artifacts to museums. And the museums have people queuing up and each person has a color, which corresponds to the artifact types. And the more red people queue up, the more the red artifacts are worth. And I showed this to Mighty Boards, and they were like, yeah, that's cool. Can we make it aliens? So that's how the museums turned into an intergalactic market. And then that idea inspired asymmetric races, then that inspired uh, a command center where the uh, once the buyers bought your stuff, they go to orbit and pack up their stuff so the, they don't affect the price change immediately. They only go home a turn later. And then special command abilities that you can activate while on the mothership. So, so the theme then inspired further mechanisms. So it's it's not not a pasted on theme. It's it's an evolved theme that evolved with the game. I, I love how that. That happened. It started out with a as a game about racing unicorns. Publisher came in and said, "Let's let's make it about aliens because aliens are cool." And then the theme further helped develop the mechanisms of the game. That's that's uh that's that's fascinating. I mean, the theme should always uh, help the mechanisms. The very definition of pasted on is is if the theme inspired nothing. Right, right. I think you you tend to work with what I think are, are exceptional themes, what percentage of your games are of your own creation thematically? Almost none. And the better the theme is, the less likely that I created the theme because I'm not a theme guy. I'm a, and I'm not a mechanism guy either. I'm a, I'm a glue guy. You're a glue guy. Uh, you come up with an idea and you... Uh, Someone comes up with a theme, and then you you're, you're able to glue it together and make the game a better overall experience. Am I uh, capturing yes, that correctly? Yes, 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 yes. My job, my job is to make sure that every single cogwheel in the system is as interesting as it can be. I love that. 
and then I tend to overshoot the complexity. And then the question is, how can I substitute those cogwheels with simpler cogwheels of equal or greater depth? And when I can't substitute it anymore, that's when the game is ready. <laughs> I love that. So that's, that's more uh, insights into the mind of yourself and how you design. Oh, I can tell that uh, long and long stories about this. But yes, so anything published by Mindclash, like Anachrony or the upcoming Perseverance Castaway Chronicles, there the theme is, is uh, well, Victor and Richard are uh, the designers of Tricarian and Cerebria. They always credit it as a theme, but Richard is more the theme guy and Victor is more the implementation guy of the two. So when I take a project to them, they come back to me saying, that's cool, what would you change about the game if the theme was this? Mm-hmm. And then the answer is usually almost everything, but that's fine. So both, both Anachrony and Perseverance had radically different themes when I took it to them. So uh, so there, that's the way. Uh, at Mighty Boards, they have two very different and very good theme guys. Gordon, who is the designer of uh, Posthuman and Vengeance. He comes up with great stories. And uh, and and with, with Excavation was the first time I was working intensely with him and and I had a very mathy, very puzzly market manipulation game, and his story, I think the word I should use is mellowed it for general consumption. And 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 me trying to react to his story made the game better. And and the other guy at Mighty Boards is Dave Kirkhop, who the designer of and then we held hands, uh, Pursuit of Happiness and Patricor. So he does the soft themes, if you will. So I also really like working with him because he comes up with the weirdest theme ideas. So a few weeks ago, he gave me a call saying, hey, do you know any board games that's about being in a soap opera? So, you know, like, why would I try to come up with themes when people can do? Sometimes I come up with a setting that inspires the the uniqueness of the game. Venice is 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 more more than your average worker placement game because you have to drive between your workers with a boat and you have a limited capacity of goods you can take from one worker to another because only that many cubes fit into the boat. And when I came up with this mechanism, it was obvious that the setting of the game had to be Venice. So that that game could have never been rethemed. Or or the upcoming Tekkenu, which is a cool design with Mm -hmm. uh, the fable Daniel Tashini, he asked me what I wanted to make the game about. I was like, look, if I'm working with you, something has to go around, right? Because he designed Tolkien and something has to famously go around. And I was like, okay, what do you want to go around? I'm like, I don't know, the shadow of something, but not like photosynthesis, but like somehow different. And my first idea was to have the shadow change the cost of worker placement spots. But this was in the middle of his dice drafting phase. So he came back and said, so what about if it changes the the price of drafting different colored dice. So I was like, okay, so what what do we want in the middle of the board that casts a shadow over the dice? Mm, an obelisk? And boom, the Egyptian theme and setting was born and then it was just picking an Egyptian city and seeing when it was renovated and which gods were worshipped at the time. So, and then, uh, and then Daniel went through his list of complex names starting with the letter T? No, actually, uh, I wanted to call the game Heliopolis because it's the city of the sun. He wanted to call the game Tutankhamun because it starts with T. And then uh, Reiner Knizia reprinted Tutankhamun, which was in 1996, uh, originally published, and it got reprinted last year. I don't know if it's out or not, but we got an email from the publisher saying, don't do this to us. And... uh, and after that, we went through 17 different titles. We hated all of them. And then one of my playtesters went, hey, did you know that the Egyptian word for obelisk is tekenu? And I was like, okay, that's it. We named the game. Everybody can shut up about it now. <laughs> but I, 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 I took my jokingly revenge on Daniel for his naming scheme after Teotihuacan and Trismegistus because my upcoming game, which hasn't yet been very widely announced, but I've been dropping hints of it everywhere, uh, which is inspired by my work with him, but it's not a co-design with him. It's called Tawantinsuyu. So I I managed to have a more unpronounceable title with a T than he did. 
Batista did that. Do you, you want to say it one more time for, no, for those no. it, 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 try to it, say it in the future? It, it, no? it, will be, it will be announced soon, and then you can learn to pronounce it. But he said, I'm the only one who can get away with it because our initials are the same. Gotcha. That's funny. So, yes. We're just going to play that on loop. I, um, I, I, I love working with him because he's very much a mechanism guy. I can give him a concept and he can see some mechanism in it that literally nobody has seen in it before. And and that, because because as I said, I'm a glue guy, I need good ingredients to glue together. And and when, when I work on my own base ideas, then one in two, one in three is like good enough. The rest is like, it doesn't matter how I glue it together, it's still crap and into the bin it goes. But when I work with Daniel's ideas, or, or, or Victor and Richard's ideas, then I know that every single tool I pick up from their table is going to be high-grade, and all I have to do is build it the best way, which is why I'm always collaborating, because I really love it. And there is one exception, one game that I designed solely because I wanted to design it, and it's as I wanted, and I came up with the theme, and I came up with everything, and it's not a cool design, and that's called The Defense of Procyon 3, and it's coming on Kickstarter in April 21st. And it's a, a merry trash war game with all Euro mechanisms and low randomness and high asymmetry. High asymmetry to the point where the four players get four 10-page long rule books each. And it says, read this and then start playing. You don't have to read the other rule books, I promise. And it's about an alien race invading a human colony somewhere in the future. And it's two versus two players. And there's a space board and a ground board. And one player controls the space force of the humans. One player controls the space force of the aliens. One player controls the ground force of each team. But you also have to help out your teammate. And the other side might occasionally bombard you. So it's like Quartermaster General meets uh, Vast meets a Memoir 44 without dice with the card mechanisms of Gloomhaven. So, you know... Like I and the hundred and ten minutes, so I did not spare any stops on that, and it's not even that difficult. That's the and it's like a two-hour-long game. It's not even long, so you know, mm-hmm. that's that's the time I went crazy. That's a it's a war game. So you're mostly known. It's as a... a war game because you move units and you shoot with them, but when you say war game, you're picturing a board with chits and diaries and lookup tables and flowcharts, and resolution procedures, and, you know, the things that Eurogamers don't like. Mm-hmm. Defense of Procyon have none of those things, I promise. Interesting. You get a hand of cards. On your turn, you play two cards. You do whatever the card says. And the randomness is back building for one faction, uh, hand splitting for another faction, and the other two factions are deterministic. So, as in, you spend one action point and you deal one damage. So... No randomness, no lookup tables, no uh, terrain types. Like, there is nothing wrong with making a game about fighting. What the wider audience can't stand is the way military simulations are done as games. Like, war gamers, the grognard people, love that. And let them have it. But the wider audience goes... I don't want to care how do I need to resupply my mechanized infantry. And 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 yes, I'm known as a Eurogamer, a Eurogame designer, but if you look at Days of Fire and Nights of Fire, which I mentioned, those are already games where you run around with units and shoot. Yet, one plays like Pandemic, and the other one, I'd like to think, plays like nothing else, but still, it doesn't feel like a war game. Like, a war gamers call it a Eurogame. I see. Oh. And the theme on this once again is is very good but it's it's of your own creation was was this yes that's the only theme that i created because i really wanted my take on starship troopers and starcraft and you know the cool sci-fi stuff awesome so i I got the email from psc for this one and i i was i was very excited basically i have put so many euro gamers that say oh but i don't like war games i'm like good then just play this one and three turns in, they're like, oh my god, I blew this up and I blew that. It's because it's strategic. You you have plans, you manage your cards, you create combos. It's It has the theme of an Ameritrash, 
it has a million cards with unique text on all of them, so it looks like an Ameritrash as you play it. The things you do in it is like a war game, but the way you plan is like a Euro game. So it's what I call the best of all worlds. Are, are there any uh, more traditional war games that you personally enjoy? The, the, the war games I enjoy are the war games that the war gamers don't call war games. So mm-hmm. I really love Twilight Struggle and Labyrinth War on Terror. I really like Sekigahara, Reunification of Japan. Um, it's not a very long list, but, but there are a few that I really like. So I, I see what you're saying in terms of it's, uh, what type of war games. Yeah. I, I, I like the mechanically tight war games, especially yeah. in two-player or, or team gaming. Because, because most Euro games in two-player is, is a test of a single skill drawn out through a repeated number of things. So um, it, going back to you working as, being glue as a designer... Um, I think that's that's also interesting because you actually you you tend to work with other designers a lot, and something else that you you're also somewhat known for is is designing solo modes for for other people's games. And yes. So, so 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 there are two questions there. One is why am I working so much with other designers, and the second mm-hmm. question is so what's with those weird solo modes? My 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 inspiration for becoming a board game designer has always been Vladeshvatel. And and the thing I always admired about Radja is that that he doesn't have a thing. I mean, besides funny rule books, but you can't put through the ages, dungeon pets, Toshkalar, code names, and and mage knight on the same table, and say, oh, they're they're obviously all designed by the same guy. Right. Therefore, I tried to try everything sort of but i'm not a, I'm, I'm not quite the 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 once in a century genius that he is therefore i know i wouldn't be able to do good games in six different genres so instead what i do is i work with people who are good in their own genres and see how they improve the stuff we're working on and learn and and add my own to it and and the more I do it, the more useful I am for the next guy. Like half of the things I know now, I learned from Victor and Richard while working on Anachrony because the guys are underappreciated geniuses. But what it also gave me was the opportunity for other designers to take me seriously and and let me work with them. So I've worked now with Shini, as we discussed. I've, uh, the game is not finished yet, but I've worked with Paolo Mori. He's amazing at doing much with very little, and and yet still caring about theme and 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 making sense. Whereas Daniel is more about mechanisms first, and and what's the sharpest and most elegant mechanism we can have. I worked with Vlada on on an expansion for Tashkalar, which taught me the meaning of perfection. And, and the meaning of integrating everything, like where somebody else would call a game finished is where he calls it, okay, let's start improving it now. So that, that taught me a lot. I'm, I'm working with Richard Breeze on an upcoming key game, and and he's a master of the classic Euro point salad type of game. How can you make a, something that in this day and age would potentially be considered boring how can you make it into something sharp and interesting and 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 stand out uh on on the war game front i worked together with brian train uh, the designer of uh, distant plane and uh, colonel twilight one of the uh, often considered the best coin games so you know i i i i had nice sessions with martin wallace it's 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 to me uh, almost like an understudy kind of thing. Is is mm-hmm. these people can all come up with genius stuff, but I can glue them together differently than they have been gluing it together. And because of that, while I can't make their thing better, I can make the end thing better than what they would have done without. Because I can see a new way to put it together, and 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 now I've done it enough that good enough people let me mess with their stuff. 
So the, the near future, my hopes include people like Adam Kapinski, uh, recently had a discussion with Emerson Machizuti, and, and of course at the top of my list is always and shall be Vital Lacerda, so I'm hoping to finally nail him down because we've been talking about it for two years that we should design something together. So, you know, long list there. That's That's got to be an amazing experience to get to work with. You know all, all of these these designers that I'm, I'm sure you even as a game designer yourself admire. Yes, definitely, and 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 I've seen all of them do such sharp things. That's the easiest way to say it. It's that from zero to aha is 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 a single leap for many of these people, and 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 I always aspire to 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 see something like they do, and and it's not just designers. It's not just designers because developers are also the unsung heroes of our profession. Because again, I mentioned Victor and Richard, who are both designers and developers that improve Mind Clash games into amazingness. But as Gordon with Mighty Boards from uh, On Excavation Earth, the way he brought out, the way he made the game more interesting by tiny little toothbrush changes. That's an important skill that since and since then I've been trying to adapt to all my other projects. Have you done development work yourself? Yes, I'm uh, uh, Teotihuacan, the Daniel's previous big hit game. I was one of the developers on, and in fact, I credit the the jump in my own quality to the fact that I was given a game like Teotihuacan and said, "Can you make it better?" and it's, it was already a really good game, but because, you know, it's a mathematical euro, if it's not perfect, it's bad. So when it landed on my table, I was super critical of it. I was like, I hate this. I hate that. That's terrible. Can we do that better? No, no, no. That's not good enough. And and then And then I remembered throughout the development process that, yeah, I don't like this game. This is a six or a seven or something. And then when we finished the game, I said, the the, the lead asked me, now do I like the game? And I was like, "Eh, and then I sat down and I played it again and went, huh, this is pretty damn perfect. And, And what I tried to take away from it was how I dared to criticize that game, that here it was a really good game, and yet I challenged it to, can I make it better? And then when I went back to designing my own games, I was like, actually, I shouldn't be congratulating myself for making this good enough game. I should be criticizing my own game with the exact same tenacity and blasphemy and and just calling everything bad and challenging it to make better. And, And... both Venice and and uh, Excavation Earth are very good examples of they were good enough ideas that development made them great, and it's because I had the chance of working on stuff like uh, Daniel's Teotihuacan or or Coloma from uh, Johnny Pack or or Europa Universalis The Price of Power. Uh, those are games that I was allowed to criticize somebody else's good game. And thus I learned how I want to criticize. I think that's a designer's probably most important skill. To not be in love with the, your own stuff. Did I answer the original question? <laughs> yeah, and then, then the, the solo modes. So solo how do you yes, get into that? I really don't like playing solo modes. That's that's mm-hmm. the important thing you have to understand for this story to make sense. Uh, to me, the moment I don't feel smart in a board game, I start zoning out. Which means that if I'm winning a game by a lot or I'm losing a game by a lot, then I'm naturally bored, etc. etc. But in multiplayer, in solo games, traditionally, you know, there were the the complete the puzzle, the beat your own score kind of games. And it's like there is no one point in that game where where I'm excited because I'm just min-maxing stuff and then writing a number done at the end. So when we were when we were creating uh, the potential stretch goals for the original Anachronic campaign, and somebody mentioned, "Hey, we should probably do a solo mode because that's cool," uh, I was like, "Okay, I'll do some research." And I played Viticulture solo once. Uh, the, the solo mode is designed by the, the Mortimer Peters, and whom I consider the 
father of modern solo gaming, if you will. And it was finally exciting a little bit because it's like, okay, it's going to take that spot from, like, I need to take that spot and that spot and that spot, and oh my god, what happens if the bot takes it? But it was still not enough. My problem with it was, and and many games Modern has done since, most notably Gaia Project has done it much better, and he knows this, and I know this, and we all know it, is that uh, when you play a game like Viticulture multiplayer, then you formulate a plan, and you try to formulate your opponent's plan. And when you have to rush somewhere, you're going to rush to the place that your opponent is also rushing to. And a card flip automa doesn't do that. A card flip automa randomly goes somewhere. So what I added with Anachrony is that instead of a card deck, it shows that the bot's next action is going to be one of these five or six actions. Which meant, and if you took that action before the bot did, then the bot scored fewer points for it. Which meant that you could outsmart the bot. And basically, because I needed a higher level of engagement to be willing to play solo modes at all, I unknowingly raised the bar of the human likeness of solo opponents. And thus, when the game came out, all the people who actually like solo modes and were happy to play the old ones were all reacting like, oh my god, this new one gives me so much more lifelike gameplay. This is amazing. Why can't other games do this? And then, as I mentioned, I was working on uh, Teotihuacan as a developer. I was finishing Dice Settlers. Dice Settlers had a solo mode, because why not? Let's do a rondel this time instead of a flowchart. Uh, and I was like, hey guys, should I make a solo mode for Teotihuacan as well? And they were like, well, we have two and a half weeks until go to print date. If you can put it together in that time, we'll put it in. And I created the Teotihuacan, which again, all the solo players went, oh my god, how is this possible? Whereas all I've done was stochastically model a human player's rough actions over the course of the uh, uh, game, and I gave one turn warning to the uh, players and then randomized it. So the method is giving a bit of info to the humans so that the humans can plan, make their choices matter against the bot, So, which is easier summarized as be able to outsmart the bot, and then somehow make it a bit cooler in Anachrony, there's the story of the chronobot coming to destroy the capital. In Teotihuacan, the bot is shaped as a pyramid because, haha, it's a pyramid. So it's the message sent by the, the gods. And uh, uh, in, in Cerebria, you're fighting against the mind itself, ego. So in, in, in Snowdonia, there are trains chucking around the train and as they pass by actions, that's the actions the bot takes. So so predictability, outsmarting, and a little bit of cool, these are the things that I think, before I challenged the scene, solo games were not bothering with. And because of that, completely without a plan and without a purpose, I became the solo guy because I had a pattern on put a Euro game in front of me and I'll tell you what the bot should do. And then I have a group of now half a dozen enthusiastic solo players that are willing to take a completely unfinished and completely imbalanced bot from me and just play 20 times changing the victory point values and the action frequencies on it until the game is good. So that's that's how I can put out a solo mode basically once a month because all I have to do is come up with the concept of how to translate this game's excitement into solo mode. That's incredible. And of course, so, it's it's the same challenge to do against my own games, because I don't design my game's solo mode in mind. I design the game to be the best it is, the best I can make it, and then I ask myself, how can I model this fun in a solo mode? And And the bots for my own games are similarly externally adapted as they are of somebody else's game. And <laughs> funnily enough, I almost never play them because, as I said, I'm not a solo player, so... You, you playtest them? The solo? Yeah. Probably not, I would say. I mean, if I have the time, I play it once before it goes to print just to verify it, but I have people who are much better at it. The thing Definitely. that I can do is coming up with the translation of... Like, when I design the solo mode, I play the game as a two-player game. I sit down, 
play the game with somebody who's much better than me and then with somebody who's much weaker than me and both times take notes on how do I play what do I care about as long as playing against the bot you need to care about the same things then it's just a matter of balance of how many points the bot scores and that my playtesters can wonderfully tell me because they play the game 20 plus times and and we have every scores to target against what I care about is does the playing the solo mode make you feel like you're playing the game or does it make you feel like you're just doing a puzzle so you're actually like no, it should always make you feel like you're playing the same game. Yeah, you're actually modeling off of a, another human player. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very cool. In fact, when uh, when uh, doing uh, solo mode for something that is you know like widely played or 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 there is a master way to like there is a experienced way to do it, then I'm literally taking notes on what moves my opponent is making, and the bot should do roughly the same no uh, same moves. Uh, Tricarian's super complex bot is is basically me playing Victor, and I took notes on how he played. I think this has come across in your, your explanation of your solo modes, and you've, you've mentioned it yourself uh, several times during this conversation, but um, math plays a large role in, in how you design. Um, I, I, I imagine that has something to do with with your background somewhat. You were, you were a, a software engineer in a <laughs> no. past life. I used to be a software engineer, but I was always terrible at math. Um, 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 basically, I can look at something and eyeball it to be 80% good or 85% good if I'm lucky. And then I let people who are much better at math than I am handle the last 10%. So how does, how does that... What does that look like? Well... This story is going to be hard to tell without naming that game, but I'm not allowed to name that game yet. Uh, I designed the game last week, priced every single tile on it, completely out of thin air. I played it this morning with a friend of mine who is a much who is a better, both a better player and a better let's just cost everything kind of person. And... Uh, I was like, cool, we finished the game. We thought that you're going to win by 10 points. Turns out I won by 30. Therefore, this and that is definitely imbalanced. That effect was not fun enough, so we're going to change that to that effect. Now tell me how to rename, uh, reprice all these tiles. And I just wrote down the numbers he said. Because I care about the system. I care about why is this thing in the game? Do I have motivation to engage with this system? Do I have a reason to care for that strategy? Would I ever pick A over B, or is it always going to be B? And as long as I can answer those questions, whether it costs three rocks or four rocks and gives you five victory points or six victory points, I really don't care. That's testing. Interesting. And uh, there's, there's one upcoming title that I, I don't think we've we've mentioned, uh, another work that you're doing with, with Mind Clash Games, that's uh, Perseverance. Yes, I, I, I casually mentioned it. Perseverance is the most aptly titled game ever because we've been working on it for better part of five years. So in 2000, 2015, let's go with 2015. 2015, Essen, uh, the, the designers of Yido, Thomas van der Ginster and Wolf Plank, were showing me a half-finished prototype that had a game mechanism in it where you could convert a die from the pool to your color. And if other people used your colors, they would get stuff. And I was like, hey, that feels like a democracy. You're convincing the specialized people to vote for you. And they were like, okay, let's build a game about a small town having council elections. And what theme would it be cool on? And we were like, well, we don't want Greeks and Romans because that's boring. Everybody does it. We don't want modern American or or Western European politics because... Nobody likes talking about that. So, hey, Iceland has been a democracy for 1,100 years. Let's make it about Viking democracy. That's cool. And then I pitched it to Mindclash a little over a year later. And then at Next Essen, Jorvik, uh, Feast for Odin, In the Name of Odin, and two other Viking games came out. And Mindclash was like, that's cool, but the Vikings have to go. And we were like, okay, guys, you're the ones who come, came up with the theme for Anachrony, so come up with a better theme for us. And they said, so it's a uh, cruise ship that crash-landed on a mysterious island and they can't leave, so the people build a city, and then the city gets attacked by dinosaurs. And then I was like, 
Okay. And the Viking game had a mechanism where you would semi-collaboratively load up ships to go raiding. It was quite fun. And that made no sense in the context of the new theme. We were like, okay, how about we have adventures on the map instead? So we spent a year designing a new half of the game to figure out how those adventures should work in a way that's not too complicated because we couldn't just, you know, design a whole new RPG combat system into it. It had to be a payoff of a Euro game. And then there were too many strategies. People didn't have direction. So we were like, okay, not we don't want a hard asymmetry like an anachrony, but maybe goals, uh, maybe rules you can adopt by meeting goals. And then and we got to a point where we had a very nice, very deep, very interesting three and a half hour super heavy Euro, which took about an hour to teach and usually ended up with one in four people having their brains melted. Plus, it was set on a, this exciting island that these people got here somewhere, they struggled to build a city, and the game was showing none of it. The game was showing a finished city with a map where you... And, and Richard and Victor, again, the guys at Minecraft were like, yeah, but how about we start the game with the founding of the city? I was like, well, that's a completely different mechanism. We can't do that. Okay, how about... In game one, we found the city, and in game two, we expand the city, and in game three, we explore the island. How about game one is a tutorial for game three? So we built a tutorial, which was about a third as complex as game three, and it was a terrible game. So we spent the next year and a half redesigning that game from scratch that uses some of the same mechanisms as the original big game, kind of leads into it, but it's not the same game, but it's good enough on its own, so it's not a... And then at the end, we're like, okay, deep breath, let's redesign everything from scratch using these tools that we've now tried into six different games and see what happens. And in half a year, it went from a game that I absolutely hated to an amazing game that now I play at least once a week and every time I'm having super much fun of it. So this is the Mind Clash magic. This is why I love working with these guys because the kind of epic turnarounds we had on this project is insane. And we called that game Episode 1. And then we dusted off the old game, the big one, simplified it, streamlined it a little bit, and and applied this amazing backstory that Richard and the theme team wrote, how the city grows out over a few decades. And we called that Episode 3. And then we took half of episode three and half of episode one, invented two new mechanisms, merged to put it together. Together, I was like, this is not going to work. And then we played it and it's like, ha, huh, this works. And we called that episode two. So many times during this project, we were like, this is never going to work. This, this, this can't happen. And now we're sitting here with one game completely finished, one game almost completely finished, and the third one just needs a bit more polish. And the fourth one I can't talk about because it's super secret. Uh, so it's going to be a series of games sharing mechanisms, but each being its own game, each being slightly more complicated than the previous one and telling a continuous story. And if you have all four games, you can play a campaign with an ultimate winner at the end. And since they share many components... Uh, on Kickstarter, we're going to sell episode two as an expansion to episode one, so you don't have to rebuy every component. So this is what we call the episodic concept, which is, it's like not a legacy, but somehow competes with that kind of thing. So, you know, and each and every one of them is an epic Mind Clash game on its own. First one takes about an hour and a half to two hours. The second one takes about two hours. The third takes about two to three hours i would say so you know we're we're delivering the epic and it comes to kickstarter early june early june that's really exciting you know david i i uh i really appreciate your time uh this has been fantastic for me i hope the the audience has enjoyed it just to finish things off let's uh give you an opportunity to do some marketing again uh and just Remind us, you have three. I, titles. I thought that's what I've been doing until yeah, now. Yeah, I have been, but let's let's give you a, an extra like call out opportunity. Uh, you have three games coming to Kickstarter very very soon. Uh, what are they? And the fourth and, one. Uh, detail, yes. When are they coming to Kickstarter? 
April the 6th, Excavation Earth from Mighty Boards, Market Manipulation, Aliens, Artifacts, Defense of Procyon, April 21st, PSC Games, 2 versus 2 Super Asymmetric Alien Warfare with the Mind of a Euro game, uh, uh, June Perseverance Castaway Chronicles Episode 1 and 2, Dice Drafting Worker Placement, the fourth Mind Clash Epic game, uh, everybody's bound to love it. And then at Gen Con, I have a game not on Kickstarter, which is Tekenu, which is a co-design with Daniel Tashini, coming from Board and Dice, Dice Drafting with the Shadow of the Obelisk going around in the middle. Hey everyone, Adam here with just a couple of bits of business before we wrap up the show this time. First off, I want to extend a huge thank you to David for coming onto the show and just being so gracious with his time and with his knowledge and sharing as much as he did. We really, really appreciate having him here. Also, a big thanks to Paul for heading up the interview. I actually wasn't able to participate this time just due to scheduling between all of us. I also wanted to give you all a heads up. Keep an eye on the podcast as well as the website, BoardGameSquad.com. There's going to be a couple of new articles up on the website soon, uh, as well as another giveaway. Previously, we gave away Cartographers, a roleplayer tale. We managed to get a copy of Troll from Oink Games that's still in shrink. So we're going to be releasing details on that giveaway very soon. So keep an eye out on the website. Keep an eye out on the podcast. Also, we want to hear from you. Shoot us an email at podcast at boardgamesquad.com. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what games you want covered on the show, what games you want reviewed in print on the website, uh, what designers you want us to be able to interview so we can try to line those up. Paul and I already have a couple of people that we really want to be able to talk to, but we want to hear from you. We want to know what you want to be hearing so that we can actually try to provide that. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm actually going to let David take us out of the show this time. David? Stay safe and stay at least a meter and a half apart. Thanks for playing. Please subscribe so you don't miss the next edition of Board Game Squad. It's boardgamesquad.com slash podcast. I said subscribe. I'm waiting. Seriously? On behalf of Adam and Paul, thanks for tuning in. My name is not important. At least to Adam and Paul. Dude, it's your turn. <laughs>